Hi, I'm AJ, your host. When we leave this world, all that is left of us are our stories and photographs. If our words no longer flow from our breath, it is up to those we leave behind to tell our tales of a life well lived. If you are in the mood for a story, then you have come to the right place. So take a seat, friend, as you are in for a Johnson's Tale. Welcome to the Johnson's Tales podcast. So much of the Anishinaabe culture is romanticized. Most people often don't think about what it was like for our people during this time of year. I used to teach a culture class with hands-on activities, even in the winter. I had students out camping during the winter. Sitting in the cold always gives a different perspective on things. The winter lodges of the Anishinaabe were peaked lodges covered with birch bark. These lodges were sometimes 20 feet long by 10 feet wide and 6 or 7 feet high. The winter lodge is different in design from the cone-shaped peak lodges of spring and fall because it is intended to house and protect an entire extended family. Sometimes there were more than three generations of family living in one lodge. In order to maintain a comfortable life during the winter months, the lodge and family were kept warm by using various methods of insulation, as well as cooking and warming fires in rabbit skin blankets. The winter lodge could be insulated by placing an additional layer of birch bark panels or cat reed mats on the inside of the lodge. The resulting dead air space could then be filled with moss, fragrant tree boughs, and or surplus furs. It could be further insulated by piling dirt or snow around the outside at the base to keep out the drafts. The winter lodges typically had two fire pits, inside one at each end, one for cooking and one for warming to provide heat without flame and smoke Rocks were heated at the cook fire and moved to the warming fire pit by using two pieces of deer antler to carry the rocks. Additional warmth was provided in the wintertime by the use of deer, moose, beer, and beaver hides that were tanned with the hair left on by the creation of rabbit skin blankets. Robes nearly six feet square were made from the skins of rabbits that were trapped in the winter after their hair had turned white. Caps, necks, scarves, mittens, wrappings for the ankles were also made of rabbit skin. The primary winter activities for the Anishinaabe men were hunting and trapping animals for food and fur. They also spent time ice fishing using hooks and spears fashioned from carved bone and wood. Time was also spent making and repairing hunting tools and equipment. Two of the most important winter survival tools for the Anishinaabe people were the toboggan and snowshoes. These flat bottom carrying tools were made of hardwood, like birch trees that cut, that is cut in the winter when its sap is not flowing. The curved front end of the toboggan is heated and shaped by pouring, pouring boiling water over it. These seven to 10 foot long carrying tools were very narrow because the trails made and followed by the Anishinaabe were narrow, usually 12 to 14 inches across. One or two people would drag the carrier by using a strap or trump line around their chest and the end of the strap or line attached to the front of the toboggan. 
The work of walking through the snow and pulling the toboggan with loads of meat and fur was made easier by the use of snowshoes. These tools were invented by the native peoples of North America. They were the utmost importance to winter work and survival. Snowshoes were made from a strip of freshly split ash wood and then had been curved either by warming over a fire or by pouring hot water over the wood. The two ends were then tied together. This made the shape resemble the outline of a fish or a beaver's tail. Two wooden crossbars would be added for strength and the open section would be filled in with rawhide thongs woven in a hexagon pattern using a needle made of bone or wood. A strip of rawhide tied across the top of the foot and another tied across the heel held the snowshoe in place. When the men returned to their lodges and families, they would find the women engaged in their usual and accustomed winter activities. During the winter, the women used their time to make eating and cooking utensils and food containers like birch bark baskets. They fashioned clothing and footwear from deer and moose hide that they had tanned in the fall. They decorated their work with inter intricate designs made from porcupine quills. Biban, though sometimes harsh, was a time of peace and introspection for the Ojibwe people. It was a time for togetherness and teaching. This time of year, traditionally, is the time that children will hear the legends of how the Anishinaabe came to be, how they received the gifts of fire, birch bark, tobacco, and minomen. Tradition tells that when a well-known relative of the Anishinaabe leaves his human form and takes the shape of Wabu's, the snowshoe hair, when he sits down and lights his pipe, when the smoke rises as the snow falls, that is the time of year when legends can be heard. Settle in for three personal tales about deer hunting. My dad loved deer hunting. Can't think about deer season without thinking about him. Being the firstborn, I was the first to tag along with him. Those first years were full of cold fingers and toes and lots of deer harvested. When I was a kid, hunting was like a military operation with a gang of guys from Stanbury, where my dad grew up. We would hunt along the tracks of the Sioux line. We made drives I don't believe anyone makes anymore. Those drives had names like Lone Pine Drive. Everybody knew them from years of doing the same thing. We killed a lot of deer back then. We would hunt all day and rarely had a car. You packed a lunch. For a treat, we would light an old pine stump on fire to heat up our sandwiches. We hunted for meat, not sport. I learned about guns and sportsmanship. I learned about camaraderie. I learned about deer and how to respect them. I love how much my dad loved deer hunting and sharing that with me. So many stories they told and so many memories. I don't hunt much anymore but deer season still stirs something inside of me that I can't quite explain. Now my son hunts, and I tell the stories. The tradition continues. Thanks, Dad. Tale number two. To fight all the darkness in this world, I reach for my culture to give me strength and guidance. My son killed his first deer, and I'm giving a feast for that honor. It will have to be a small feast because of COVID, but it is the right thing to do. 
in our culture, this marks one of those passages of life. My son has proved he can now provide for a family. One of our teaching is to show our humbleness and generosity. We honor this milestone and the deer that gave his life so we can feed ourselves. I wish I could invite more people, but all of you will be in our thoughts and we will definitely do a spirit plate. Tale number three. Bob Barber reminded me of a hunting story and wanted me to tell it, so here goes. It was very early morning, before sunup. My brother dropped me off in some hardwood hills. I walked up to the top of a hill and was just getting settled when I heard a loud shot. A minute later, I heard deer running at me. With my heart pounding, I see two huge bucks running right at me. I have to admit that I got a little buck fever and the first shot went a little high. As I tried to eject another shell into the chamber, it jammed. I was thinking of of all the rotten luck. I ripped my gloves off with my teeth and found a way to get the shell out and slammed another in. I looked up and took a shot at the biggest deer and dropped it with a shot to the heart. Then I looked and the other one was confused by the echo in the hills and wasn't sure where I was. He was walking slowly through the hardwoods. I took aim, but a big oak tree was in my way. He was stamping his foot, trying to figure out where I was. Then he took one more step into the clear and I shot him also. Two big bucks, a 10-pointer and an 8-pointer, barely after sunup. When we went to register them, I tagged one with a state tag and the other with my tribal tag. I used to get a state tag for the state open. Well, we went into Hayward to register the state tag. The guy was all excited to see the deer. He said, I'm going to get my camera. That picture is going to be on the wall. When he came back, he noticed the tribal tag on my other deer. He asked, what is that? I said it was a treaty tag. He walked away shaking his head. There was no way he was going to put a picture up on his wall with a treaty tag on it. I have to admit it hurt and it made me angry. But when I look back at the deer... My 10-pointer and my 8-pointer, I got over it. I hope you enjoyed that tale as much as I did. If you would like to find out more about Gary Johnson and the story you just heard, head on over to johnsonstales.com. Did you know Gary? Do you have a story to share? send it on over to johnsontales at gmail.com. Take care and I will see you next week for another Johnson's Tale.